A dry martini. One. And a deep champagne goblet. Just a moment. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinole. Shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Got it? Sounds excellent. I'll make us one of those. Ah, the pleasures of podcasting. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Hock, Jonas Hock. And my name is Schneider, Christian Schneider. And as we're sitting here, wearing tuxedos, of course, drinking some lovely dry Vespa martinis, we are preparing to discuss Casino Royale by Ian Fleming, the first novel in the James Bond series. Of course, James Bond has become something of an international icon, a figure in the ranks of Sherlock Holmes or Dracula, with so many adaptations. But yes, there were novels about James Bond written by Ian Fleming in the 1950s and 60s, and Casino Royale was the first one published in 1953. The James Bond novels were, in general, very successful, and the films, obviously, as we know, are successful to this very day. We will talk a bit about the films. I think you kind of escape them really when you talk about James Bond because the character is so bound up with the films. But let us first talk about the novel. Casino Royale is, as you can imagine, about a casino where James Bond has a mission to win in Baccarat against Le Chiffre, a Soviet spy who finances Soviet activity in France but who has rather misinvested some of the money that his superiors have entrusted him with and now he's basically playing poker for his life if he loses he knows that he will be ruined and he will be the next to, to be killed by smirsh the soviet anti-intelligence uh, organization if he wins he will continue to fund communist activity in france if you have seen the film version of casino royale you basically know the main plot, because it hasn't been changed between 1953 and, what was it, 2006, I 2006, think? 2006, yes. But obviously the novel is much more steeped in the Cold War than the film version was, with Le Chiffre as a communist spy and James Bond as a British secret agent who's very much on the side of what is still left of the empire. So we have to read this novel as a novel that was published in the 1950s and as part of yeah a cultural landscape that was much different than nowadays. And maybe that is the fascinating part, basically. But reading Casino Royale, I think, Jonas, is basically a, a trip back to the 1950s. It's not something that really connects to us, is it? In several aspects, it really is. Um, firstly, of course, he drinks so much. Uh, Ian Fleming died when he was in his late 50s, I think, uh, of a heart attack. And reading the kind of lifestyle that James Bond leads and extrapolating that maybe Fleming led a similar, comp comparable lifestyle, yes, you can imagine that that would really not be good for your health. Uh, a lot of drinking, of course, which... Ironically, even though we know that drinking to excess is bad, the first thing we said when we started discussing this podcast 
was, oh yeah, we'll have to drink martinis while we do it. And we're doing that. <laughs> but also, I think in the first chapter it is said that James Bond lit his 70th cigarette of the day. He smokes so much. It's a miracle that any woman would let him near her. He must smell like a fucking ashtray. So the lifestyle is a very obvious thing about the differences in attitude. But then, of course, James Bond is a raging sexist. And I'm informed in other novels as well, there's some very dire racism, a lot of homophobia. Doesn't he at one point say that uh, homosexuals cannot whistle? I think he does. And actually, Casino Royale, which is the very first James Bond novel, is actually kind of restrained in that respect. It is one of the less racist James Bond novels. It is one of the less sexist James Bond novels. And I should know, I actually read them all. So and we we have another interesting situation here where you have read all the James Bond novels and you've seen all the movies, I think. No, 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 I haven't seen all the movies. That... Definitely not. <laughs> but you have ordered the Blu-ray set, so you will have seen all the movies soon. I have only read Casino Royale, and I've only really seen the... Christian Bale? No, not Christian <laughs> Bale. The Daniel Craig films, uh, which I love. I love the Daniel Craig films. Uh, I would love the Christian Bale films as well. That would be a very different Bond. Actually, the Daniel Craig films are kind of close to the novels, um, and the film version of Casino Royale is close to the novel version of Casino Royale in many respects. Because what struck me is that in Casino Royale, it is definitely a novel of the 1950s. But James Bond is a much more complex character than you might think when you think about the iconic manifestations in films. James Bond seems to be always in control. He's always cool. He always gets the girls. He always knows how to act. But when reading Casino Royale, you notice that, on the one hand, James Bond isn't always in control. And that's something that kind of is featured in all of the novels. James Bond seems to be master of improvisation, at best, that he just stumbles into situations and then makes the best of it. Mainly because he's um, impeccably educated. He's a model version of an an upper-class British person and that gets him through basically everything no matter what situation he's Mm -hmm. in and then Casino Royale why he gets the job because he's the one who can play Baccarat the best and you mentioned that Baccarat is like poker Baccarat is basically nothing like poker Baccarat is isn't it it's it's a bit like like blackjack basically it's I I might have to add that I know jack shit about card games (laughs) Um, all that I know about Baccarat I literally learned from this novel exactly because there's large parts which deal with how Baccarat is played but actually those worked really well I understood all of this at least I thought that I did and um, so they play Baccarat and that's the basically the big climactic scene it's smack dab in the middle of the novel and I got that I got how the game works I got why certain things are meant to be exciting but it never felt like I was lectured at I I mean there is a long section all about how to play Baccarat but that sort of fitted into the novel very organically I think maybe that's the thing that Fleming does the best he deals with exposition very well 
Also the exposition about the whole plot with Le Chiffre and his investments and that he needs to win back the 50 million francs if he doesn't want to be killed by the Soviets. That is all presented as a dossier to M, so James Bond's boss. So it's obvious that that would be written in a very obvious expositionary way and thereby he sort of manages to organically include it in the novel. And that was really impressive because oftentimes you get exposition in thrillers like this or in spy novels and it's really tedious. And here it's done so well. Um, and he actually doesn't start with the exposition. He starts with James Bond in the casino and then we move on to the dossier in the second or third chapter. And that makes it a lot more entertaining. That's something Ian Fleming does a lot. Starting in medias res, basically, and teasing you about what is going on. And then in the second or third chapter, he starts off with the briefing of James Bond. What is this all about? So the exposition is something yeah, he does kind of well. But a, a point of criticism that has been leveled at the film version as well is that no matter whether it's poker or baccarat, Basically, James Bond doesn't do anything by himself. He's just lucky. And for the most part of Casino Royale, that seems to be the case. James Bond is not a character that knows what is going on. He's always a step behind. He is being told by Mathis from the French Secret Service, for example, what is going on, who's who, who is listening in on him, and so on. So... James Bond is, despite being this super spy, always a bit lacking in information. And maybe there he becomes a kind of stand-in for the reader, learning what this situation is all about. Though I think, yes, he is very lucky in the game, but also he loses a lot of money. Though, actually, it's it's interesting. He loses, I think, it's like 16 million francs at one point. But the entire game is played over 50 million francs. So the Schiffer needs to win 50 million francs to pay back his Soviet superiors. And if he doesn't, he's screwed. Now, I actually went online and I calculated how much 50 million francs in 1952, when the book was written, uh, would be today. And that would be slightly over $1 million. Oh, no! So it's not... That much money from our perspective nowadays? I mean, spies deal in very large sums and one million dollars famously is so laughably small for spies and supervillains to fight over. It's, it's quite endearing. It's quite a small world that's described in Casino Royale. It's all about this small town of Royale where he actually gives a description of the town and how the town fared in comparison to other resorts that also have casinos. And it really felt like it's... Oh, all these people know each other. They're pals. They get along. Yeah, definitely. The, the scale is much smaller than you are maybe used to when watching James Bond films. And that notion of the money is also reflected in uh, Le Chiffre's position. Why is he such an important figure... Because he's the boss of a union of truckers in a part of France, only in Alsace. And that is... A union of truckers? Is there any James Bond story that features truckers as the main villains? But that adds a certain dimension that makes it more ludicrous to a certain degree, but also more realist, maybe. I mean, this is 1953. The Cold War is still in its 
early stages. And Ian Fleming had at least some experience with Secret Service work in the Second World War. So it's it's dubious how much experience he had. Um, Maybe he made it sound as if he was this really badass spy, but actually he wasn't. But at least nowadays we think of James Bond as something that is escapist fantasy. Someone saving the world on their own and banging lots of bangable chicks. And And as as Mathis describes uh, Vesperlind, great protuberances back and front. (laughs) That is just the definition of objectification, really. But for Casino Royale, at least, it has this small scale and it seems something realist at least for the time so james bond didn't start off as this mythical figure in casino royale and in some of the other novels at least he is a secret agent and does what a secret agent does despite all the ideas of luxury and a highly glamorous lifestyle he is part of the machine And that makes reading Casino Royale much more interesting than watching all of the James Bond films in a row. Because you get an idea where this idea came from. You That you have this British super spy, but you get an idea where he came from. And I think, I mean, the reason why Casino Royale was only adapted into an Eon Productions Bond film in 2006 is to do with lots of legal wranglings. But I think it's actually a great advantage that Daniel Craig got to start out with this novel because it's kind of the origin story. At the end of the novel, James Bond realizes that his style of spying is very different from the other styles of spying that are coming in in this nascent Cold War. People like Vesper, spoiler alert, she's a traitor, she's a double agent. Oh no! (laughs) But... He realizes that this kind of spying is going to become more important and he wants to destroy Smirsh, Smirsh, the Soviet anti-spying organization, so that they would only have white-collar bureaucrat spies left and that true, honest, red-blooded spies like him could run the show again. It's a very interesting motivation for the character. And it's very interesting what you already mentioned about James Bond really being vulnerable. You really see him get beat up quite a lot in this novel. That was something that the adaptation from 2006 was really lauded for as well. James Bond takes a beating. He bleeds, he sweats, he's out of breath. And I found it fascinating how much that's the case here. For example... When he's in the casino, he's threatened by a guy who holds a gun to the base of his spine. And he doesn't do anything cool or clever to get out of that. He just simply pushes back his chair and falls over and is dizzy afterwards. He's just basically trying to get out of the situation any way he can. And even though he kind of makes himself a fool and he really hurts himself... He manages what you said. He he stumbles into situations and then has to find a way to get out of them again. And also this very intense violence. For example, first Le Chiffre tries to kill him with a bomb. And when it's described how this bomb ignites and actually the two people who try to kill him with the bomb are killed by it. A ghastly rain of pieces of flesh and shreds of blood-soaked clothing fell on him and around him. And then later, Bond felt himself starting to vomit. That's not the smooth, hey, I can deal with any kind of situation kind of agent. That's a guy who is 
fucked up by the things that happened to him. And when body pieces start falling around him, he vomits, as would you. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of surprising to read things like that in a novel from the 1950s. And I think that adds to the effect that James Bond did have at that time, definitely, that Ian Fleming addressed things that were not usual at that time, definitely not in literature or even in thriller literature. The violence on the one hand, but also the sexuality on the other hand. Though actually the sexuality could be overstated. <laughs> I mean, the first sex scene between Bond and Vesper Lind, that is just so awkward and pussyfooting around the subject. Wait, let me read it to you because it is so... It is so ridiculous. The, the, the chapter is called Tide of Passion, which sounds like a, like a, yeah. a, like a cheap romance novel. He plunged his mouth down onto hers, forcing her teeth apart with his tongue and feeling her own tongue working at first shyly and then more passionately. He's not a good kisser. Come on, face it. I, I mean, no, just don't. But at the same time, again, this is the 1950s. Yeah, but This is a time yeah. when something like that wouldn't have been described in probably 90% of the novels. So talking about lust in that way, about sexuality as something apart from love, although, granted, Casino Royale gets very, 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 very cheesy at times. Especially when they eat all the French cheese. I will ignore that and continue to... Look. No, I do want to talk about food. That's very important. In but uh, we'll, we'll come to the food. We're definitely going to come to the food. But... As long as you don't come on the food... <laughs> Another martini! <laughs> this is going to be the worst podcast we've ever done so far. It's going to be the best ever. <laughs> Regarding sexuality, I mean, for example, it's known that Ian Fleming was a proponent of S&M. And reading the torture scene of James Bond by Le Chiffre, it's not too far-fetched when he describes that moment when pain is turned into something of satisfaction, I think he calls it. And also that very, very awkward moment when James Bond thinks about having sex with Vesper and he thinks that it's going to be really, really good because she's going to resist and she's going to have enough of the, I think he calls it the sweet tang of rape. Yeah, rape sort of seems to be the unfortunate uh, theme in this podcast. Maybe we should rename this as chronicling rape and sexual abuse in great literature, because unfortunately it's really incredibly prevalent, even though we don't realize it, which tells you something about how fucked up everything is. But, but uh, yeah, he basically says rape as... Another fun thing to do. He basically, yeah. And again, obviously, from her perspective, any perspective, that should be really, 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 really horrible. But at the same time, Fleming seems to be something of a sexually liberated writer at that time. And that makes James Bond as a figure very interesting as well that he is definitely not part of what has been done before in literature. He is definitely a kind of child, so to say, of the post-war area. Not area. 
the post-war area, area, which is actually one of the erogenous zones, but most people don't stimulate it properly. You have to find a woman's post-war area, and it will drive her mad. Seriously, if you believe stick, me, boys. If you stick your um, Kina Lillet in it. <laughs> your Kina... If you if you know how to handle your Gordons, <laughs> Gordons are testicles. I mean, he seems to be part of that post-war era where things are not like they were before, and that is the whole thing. Casino Royale is about dealing with the new way things are. Just the setting. Royale is described in a lot of detail as a gambling town that has suffered throughout its history and now it's kind of coming back so even the setting tells you that things are not like they were before and i think that is the same for all of this james bond is a secret agent but he's not like the secret agent of the early 20th century and obviously, most importantly, Britain's position in this game of espionage is not the same that it was before. The empire is gone. Britain is no longer the most powerful nation in the world. And all of the James Bond novels are dealing with that. Basically, on the one hand, trying to assure you that, yeah, Britain is still very important and James Bond is the most powerful and most important secret agent in the world even the americans think that way but on the other hand yeah it's it's not the same anymore it's a new world it's a new world order firstly i think it's very interesting how the americans are handled in the book and in the film because in the book the americans basically say okay you got the scoop you go ahead and do it which I can imagine in the 1950s and that they would send an agent to sort of support James Bond. But they very cleverly updated it in the 2006 version for the film that the Americans basically say, no, we are going to do this on our own. We don't need the British to help us. And then Felix Leiter is just the American who realizes, okay, I'm bleeding chips. I'm out of my depth here. I'm just going to support you because seriously, as long as one of us gets to beat Le Chiffre, I'm happy. What you said about Casino Royale and all the James Bond novels being about this changing nature of the world after the Second World War. It's very interesting that Bond reacts to it in one way after he had been tortured by the chief with a carpet beat, actually, which is... I mean, the scene in the movie with the knotted rope that Le Chiffre slams against Bond's protuberances, his Gordons, you might say. <laughs> that is really harsh, but with a carpet beater. Holy fuck. And after that, Bond is sort of changed, and he actually says, when one is young, it seems very easy to distinguish between right and wrong, but as one gets older, it becomes more difficult. At school, it's easy to pick out one's villains and heroes, and one grows up wanting to be a hero and kill the villains. But he realizes he can't do that anymore. He realizes that maybe the world is not as simple as he imagined. But then towards the end, he realizes, oh wait, the world is fucked up, and there's this new class of spies coming in, but he sort of casts himself as a symbol of the Ancien Regime. It's a very conservative way to view the world, you could say. And I would actually dispute your assertion that Fleming is in some ways a very sexually liberated author. I mean, he describes sex scenes and he talks of them making passionate love for hours or soft love for a long time. But seriously, can you tell me what's going on in this scene? 
He slipped his hands down to her swelling buttocks and gripped them fiercely, pressing the centers of their bodies together. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Panting, she slipped her mouth away from his, and then clung together. Okay? While he rubbed his cheek against hers and felt her hard breasts pressing into him. What? How is that sexy? Rubbing your cheek against someone. I mean, that is just... I mean, that is not even exciting. That's just weird. And then later, he sees Vesper cry, and he wonders why that might be. I think, yeah, because you just spent five minutes rubbing your cheek against her. It's just, that's just so weird. The, the way he describes the sex, it's not even done in a sort of delicate way where he would say that they took their clothes off and went over to the bed and then dot, dot, dot. That would have been exciting, but rubbing cheeks together? Come on. That would have been exciting. I think your definition of exciting is a bit different than you mine. You just don't have any imagination, do you? Maybe, but that's a different topic. I think that is quite indicative of this weird position towards sexuality that Ian Fleming, or at least the James Bond novels, seem to have. That on the one hand, there is this definite obsession with sex, but secret agents or that literary figure of the secret agent is still a figure of the late Victorian era, very Victorian in their values. So James Bond is on the one hand a very Victorian figure, but on the other hand he is a figure of the post-war era where sex is something that is normal to a certain degree. And I think that, again, makes him more interesting than that idea of James Bond we have nowadays. And to be honest, the James Bond in Casino Royale is more interesting because He's definitely more of an asshole. Yeah, he's he's an asshole. He's a psychopath as well. Yeah, uh, he kills with relish. Even he talks about killing a Japanese codebreaker. Very, and he said, "Oh yeah, that was good. That was clean. I didn't get in touch with him." He's a very sort of scary guy. But at the same time, it is reflected that this is what has to be done, and. Surprisingly, I mean, James Bond's great speech that he gives to Mathis, his French connection, is... <laughs> the French connection. Yeah. That's that's another movie, you get it? Get yeah. it? Yeah. Mathis is his French yeah. connection. His speech is treated as a bit puerile, a bit immature, that he says... He doesn't know what's right and wrong anymore, and he doesn't know whether what he's doing is the right thing. But at the same time, James Bond is having these thoughts, and that is something that the James Bond from the films would never even bother pondering. The James Bond from the films would just do what he has to do. The James Bond in this, the very first novel, already questions what he is doing. And he is questioning the ideological and even psychological implications of what he's doing. In the end, obviously, it turns out that there is something like the good and the bad, and the good has to fight the bad. But it is at least treated as a question that is worth asking and a question that is worth pondering. And that is much more than probably 80% of all James Bond films do. At least the question is raised in the newer, in the Daniel Craig or is it in the Christian Bale as I will refer to them now, Bond movies. So I think because they had Casino Royale as their starting point, this has really informed all the Daniel Craig Bond movies. Definitely. I mean, 
it is again kind of fitting that they went back to Casino Royale when they had to reboot James Bond, not only because it is, as you mentioned, an origin story, but because it casts that whole figure of James Bond in a new light. And the James Bond as portrayed by Daniel Craig adds this whole notion of, yeah, on the one hand, he is a kind of psychopath, a sociopath. But on the other hand, it is a question of what is right, what is wrong, and it's more complicated, maybe. But I also want to play devil's advocate a bit for the follow-up, A Quantum of Solace, which is almost universally loathed, but many people have started to sort of reconsider it and to say that it's actually very good in a double bill with Casino Royale, That's seen as a direct follow-up, which it is. And it's not just because I was an extra in A Quantum of Solace. Yes, I was an extra in A Quantum of Solace, actually wearing the very same tuxedo that I'm wearing for this recording now. Blah, 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 yes, blah, I know, blah, I know. Blah, blah, I'm going on about this. But the thing is, Vesper was a double agent because the Soviets had her lover, a Polish RAF pilot, in custody. And in a book, that's straightforward. But in Quantum of Solace, they add another layer to it, and that actually she was honey-trapped. He was a guy from this terrorist organization, Quantum, who goes around befriending and starting relationships with women in powerful positions, in government positions, so that they can then use this guy to blackmail these women. And that is just so much more nihilistic. And that's basically the same like at the end of Casino Royale where Bond realizes that there's no big good or bad, but that you have to choose a side and fight for it. And that even Vesper's love that she turned double agent for is revealed as something phony. Just amplifies the entire fact of it so much more for me. So... Uh, I, I raise my hat to the professional writers from Hollywood who are very well paid. And I say, yeah, you did well there. But again, we talk about the films and maybe yes. at the same time, it's kind of futile <laughs> to try and separate James Bond, the novels from James Bond, the films. Because obviously, why are we still talking about James Bond, because he is still relevant as a cultural figure. I mean, how excited are you for November when Spectre is going to come out? I'm incredibly excited! And yes, we're going to see the, the movie when it opens here in Germany in tuxedos. I, I'm just going to say in tuxedos. No, 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 no. I yes. was just going to add that. We're going to wear the very same tuxedos we're wearing now on the hottest day of the year. Yeah, we are seriously melting here right now. Uh, speaking of which, should I make us another ice-cold Vesper Martini, maybe? Uh, probably, probably. Yes. But I wanted to say something about um, trying to separate the novel from the films. There's some things that are really different. On the one hand, as we mentioned, James Bond as a character seems to be more complex than in the films. On the other hand, I think that Casino Royale adds another perspective simply by... Again, asking that question, why did Ian Fleming write those books? Why did he think that that was something worth writing down? Obviously, it's on the one hand just because it's exciting, because it adds sex and violence to something that might sell well. But on the other hand, I think that James Bond is a figure that is kind of, yeah, personification of England. 
Okay, that... wait for a second because I want to say something about the appeal of the books um, as adaptation. As okay, 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 okay. I just need to finish this. <laughs> this is so fucking unprofessional, but luckily we're podcasters, not actual broadcasters. Yeah, exactly. And luckily, you're going to de- do the editing, aren't you, Jonas? Yes, I am going to do the edit and I will fucking curse myself. Oh, God. I feel quite out of sorts. But maybe that is the best position to discuss James Bond because if you think about if you think about James Bond rationally, there's nothing to really appreciate. It is horribly sexist, it's horribly racist, it's horribly materialist. It is everything you should really hate. But on the other hand, I myself, as a liberal Western European who thinks himself to be quite progressive as much as possible, I'm really excited for the new James Bond film. And why is that? Why is that, I ask you? Because it's just so fucking cool. But why? Why? What does Casino Royale tell us about why James Bond is so cool? Why are we who in the last episode talked so much about how much we appreciated a different perspective on cultural knowledge, a female perspective, a perspective of someone not white, not European. And on the other hand, we're gushing here, basically, about James Bond and about the, the values. malest Europeanist guy imaginable. Is it just the alcohol? Is it just because James Bond drinks a lot and we have basically his permission to drink a lot? We have the license to drink. Got a license to drink. Basically what I think, even though all of that, what you said is true, there is nothing to like here, really. It's, it's really horrible. And I was prepared to come in here and say, Oh, that was just horrible. Why did you make me read that? This was trash. And then I found myself really enjoying it. I mean, I'm a very slow reader, as I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, I think. But I had to really pace myself just so that I wouldn't finish reading the book at the beginning of this week rather than at the end, towards the end of the week. It's so readable. And I think part of the appeal of the book is part of the reason why it was so well suited for being adapted into a series of movies that really introduced product placement. Basically, there is so much conspicuous consumption in this. There is so much alcohol and cigarettes and food. And this was published at a time when Britain was still rationed. And then he describes mountains and mountains of butter and cream and meat and coffee and tobacco. And people in Britain would have read this and thought, oh my God, I want to have this so badly. And you can see it with us now. I mean, we can have as much alcohol and meat and butter as we want. And we still like to indulge in these James Bond pleasures in the martinis and the suits. It's just so damn luxurious and you so want to live that life, at least parts of it, at least the appealing parts of it. That is, I think, definitely part of the appeal, but it's also quite puzzling. Casino Royale is actually, again, quite restrained in that respect. If you read, for example, from Russia with Love, 
he describes everything in so much detail the breakfast he's going to have and obviously the brand names play such an important role so the product placement that you have in james bond films nowadays so Omega watches or VW cars and so on. That was or Tom Ford suits. Seriously, my my ambition in life is to first lose a couple of pounds so I look at least a bit more like Daniel Craig. <laughs> a bit. I'm not delusional. But also to buy a Tom Ford suit. Because even when you don't look like Daniel Craig in a Tom Ford suit, you will look fucking ace. But that is, even nowadays, that is still part of the appeal. And back in the 50s, that was already part of the formula. Isn't, isn't there a scene in Catch Me If You Can where... I never watched Catch Me If You Can. The character played by Leonardo DiCaprio gets a suit that's exactly like the one that James Bond wears in Doctor No. And then the tailor says, Ha now all you need is the car. And the next scene, of course, is him in the car. <laughs> because... Exactly. People like that, young men like us, just want to be a bit like James Bond. We don't necessarily want to be threatened by people and tortured with carpet beaters against our genitals. And we don't want to treat women like they're trash. I mean, I don't. I don't know about you. But... Way! <laughs> um, says the man who called his girlfriend Money Penny. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we actually had this discussion about, well, my girlfriend is here as well, and she had a martini with us. What woman could she be? Could she be Tracy Bond? No, she dies. Could she be Vespa? No, she's a traitor and she dies. Could she be Money Penny? Oh, she's a kind of floozy, but at least she has a life expectancy of more than one book. Sylvia Trench. <laughs> uh, but the whole branding thing, the whole... What the fuck is wrong? Apparently there's a secret agent running around killing people, so that's why there's so many ambulances. I say, good British. I say. I say. You know, back in the day, we wouldn't make such a fuss with the ambulance. If we were shot, we were shot. That was all. Yeah, but, but, you know, uh, not being shot would have been considered very working class. Uh, very rude. Very rude. Very, very rude. rude indeed. Not eaten at all. Not no, 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 no. No, I mean, I mean, you could go to Harrow, of course, but... The whole focus on branding that is extremely capitalist. And you might, again, see that as part of the whole Cold War experience, that drinking certain things, eating certain things, buying certain things was part of your duty against the Russians, against communism, against Smirsch. Smirsch. Smirsch sounds like something that snake people or Sneeple would buy at a concert. We're going to the Smurf stall and we're going to get a manned t-shirt. It's quite interesting as well that in the later Bond movies, Smurf doesn't play a role anymore. Then it's all Spectre, this newly invented secret Spectre. organization. Spectre is... Uh, what, what is Spectre? Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's so stupid. I mean, Smurf is really incredibly stupid, but at least it is the actual name of an actual Soviet agency that worked against spies. It's like something Smoshki Spionam. It's smashing spies. But Spectre is just this convoluted anagram where I think the R stands for revenge and the E stands for extortion. 
I bet you Ian Fleming just sat in Goldeneye, his mansion in Jamaica, which had no glass in the windows, actually, so that a cooling breeze could waft through it at all times, which sounds really, really stupid as well. No, it sounds amazing right now. <laughs> it sounds very amazing. Oh, my God, it's so hot here. This is one of the hottest days here in Germany where we record, and we're wearing tuxedos. I mean, we took off the jackets, but we're still wearing long sleeve shirts, and it's really horrible. And we're really drunk as well. <laughs> I bet you Ian Fleming sat on the veranda and he was like, okay, I cannot use Smirsh anymore because, I don't know, maybe the Soviets threatened him or something. And he said, okay, I'm going to come up with this other organization. I'm going to call it Spectre. And he made up this stupid, stupid anagram. And he thought, yeah, I'll put something better there later. And then he just never got around to it. So now he's stuck with this Stupid thing, which now the Eon firms are going to bring back in November because they got the rights to Spectre back. And I really hope that Christoph Waltz is going to explain what Spectre stands for and then sort of do a take to the camera. Eh, I know. Acronym. What did I say? Anagram. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really doesn't. And I think that is the whole thing about James Bond. It really doesn't matter it's just fun yes. it was so much fun to read yes. this and part of why we do this podcast is because i'm a really really slow reader and even though i study english literature for a master's degree i don't read a lot which is bad i know and this was so much fun to read even if it just is as a kind of guilty pleasure maybe it's so much fun to read this and I'm looking forward to watching the movies again. I mean, once once you have the Blu-rays, we have to watch all the Daniel Craig ones at least before we go all to... All of them. Be- all of them. Oh, oh my God. Is, the, is this officially something we're going to do? We're going to record a podcast episode and then we're going to watch a James Bond movie? Uh, no, it's not. But <laughs> I have to agree. It's it's. I've read all of the James Bond novels last year in a very short amount of time. And we could address so many points. We kind of address the sexism. We, and it's really horrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's th- th- really that's, horrible. That's kind of where the joke we did on the last episode came from, that James Bond calls Vesper a bitch before he meets her. In the movie, he only calls her a bitch after she's dead. Which is really intense in the novel, by the way. How he basically files his report that Vesper was a double agent and that she's dead now. And the novel ends with, yes, was. The bitch is dead. And that's it. That's what it ends with. That is really bleak. I mean, the the movie ended all kind of cool, like with him standing over Mr. White and saying, name is Bond. James Bond. So he has his catchphrase and it's all, so excited. What will the next one be? Answered the next one will be kind of a disappointment. <laughs> but just to, you know, the way he's upset about the fact that they send a woman just because he thinks, oh, women are always trouble on missions because they fall in love with you and then you break their heart and they cry. Rather like that uh, Nobel Prize laureate. I don't want to repeat his name here because I think he's he's a ridiculous figure and... But at the same time, you think James Bond is entertaining. And that is... Yeah, yeah. But James Bond is not someone I look to for moral guidance. I might find him appealing. I mean, I find Patrick Bateman appealing. Right now, I'm wearing the Brooks Brothers shirt that I bought because of Patrick Bateman. And he's an even 
worse person. I mean, he has no ideology at all. At least James Bond has a questionable ideology. <laughs> but that, that, that is the thing. James Bond, we agree, even in his earliest manifestation, is quite horribly yeah, horrible, horribly racist. I mean, Speaking of racist, um, you said that there was hardly any wacky racism in this. There is one really hilarious point. Uh, I just want to read it to you. Bond experience told him that few of the Asiatic races were courageous gamblers, even the much-vaunted Chinese being inclined to lose heart if the going was bad. There he's basically describing all the different gamblers on the Baccarat table, and one of them happens to be Indian, and so of course, rather than judging him on his wealth or on the way that he's played before, like he does with all the white players, no, he's Indian, and Indian people play Baccarat in a certain style, don't they? The next James Bond novel is Live and Let Die, which takes place in Harlem. Oh so my you can't imagine what kind of racism you have to deal with in that one. The thing is, we know how bad James Bond is. I mean, we didn't even talk about the style, about the formalism. And quite frankly, Ian Fleming's style is not the best. I mean, it's, I, I lauded him for doing exposition well. But the rest of his style is not so great. But still, I mean, there is a reason why we rushed through Casino Royale and I rushed through all of the other novels as quickly as I did. And I don't know, there is something that engages you. There is something that keeps you entertained. Maybe James Bond is the perfect example of literature where it's <laughs> no 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 not <laughs> okay i'm going to now write my master thesis on that topic james bond is a perfect example of literature let me finish let me because remember. just fight me if you disagree <laughs> maybe james bond is the perfect example of literature where it's all about entertainment and you can forget this part of your brain that tells you this is not good there are so many things that you should consider to be bad. Maybe this is the quintessential example of the guilty pleasure. Everything you like without having to deal with all of the moral consequences. This idea of the guilty pleasure is a kind of controversial one, you could say. It's an idea that people often say, oh, you shouldn't have any guilty pleasures. You should just like what you like. But James Bond really is a guilty pleasure. I know it's so wrong, but it just feels so right. And I think... Oh, James, no! But James, yeah. <laughs> I've got the carpet beater here, just in case we get too excited. But that's the thing. 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 The thing. A movie by John Carpenter from the 80s, which actually is a remake. Which a lot of people don't realize that it's a remake. It's a remake of The Thing from Outer Space. But it's one of these cases where the remake is superior to the original. Much as Casino Royale, where the remake from 2006 is not a remake, it's a re-adaptation. But a lot of people say it's better than the 60s version. What we're trying to say is that drink up you haven't drunk hardly <sighs> anything from your vesper martini come on i need to talk a bit now <laughs> it's this guilty pleasure and i think that's okay on an intellectual standpoint i would say you should read moby dick 
I would say you should read Americana. I would say you should even read The Wasteland, our very first episode, or maybe Proofrock, the better version of The Wasteland. But seriously, if you just think, hey, I'm going on holiday, maybe even to the French Riviera, and I just want something to read that will pass the time, you could do a lot worse than the James Bond novels. I have to agree. I mean, this is, as I said, it's horrible to a certain degree, but James Bond really makes you turn off those higher brain functions. No matter whether... Especially after three or four Vesper Martinis. Which are really good. You yes. should try them. But it really doesn't ask those complicated questions of, oh, is this socially acceptable to a certain degree? You should still ask those. But at the same time, you can just turn off your brain for at least a bit. At least if you are a white heterosexual male, as we are, you can switch off that part, maybe with the help of a martini. I think, yeah, read it. If you want to know why James Bond is still one of the most popular and most successful franchises of cultural artifacts in general, even after so many years of James Bond, just read that novel. Read all the other novels. Watch all of the films. Because there's so much to engage with. There's so much to criticize. But there's also so much to enjoy. And not taking it seriously. I think that is the main point for us. Maybe because we're drunk. Maybe because it's so hot. But not taking it seriously. Taking up all those things and not for once taking these things seriously. That is what makes James Bond so incredibly engaging. I think, though, what you said about it not necessarily being as appealing to people who are not as privileged as we are, people who are not white, heterosexual, males... I think that's going to change because... I'm going to go back to movies now for a second because... That's one of the brilliant things about James Bond. James Bond manages to be one of those characters who changes with the times. And the next Bond is probably going to be black. There's... No, 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 no. Idris Elba is not going to be no, no, James no. Bond. Idris Elba is not going to be James Bond. He's too old. But that's not to say that there couldn't be others. I mean, there's younger black actors as well, like John Boyega. He's going to be in the new Star Wars. He could conceivably be... A new James Bond. And James Bond is such a versatile character. I think even if you are not as privileged as we admittedly are, as James Bond admittedly is, if you switch off your brain anyway to enjoy it, you can also briefly leave all of that shit behind. And then afterwards you can come back and discuss it. And it is really interesting. But I think... Anyone can enjoy this if they switch off their brain anyway. No. I, I still think that James Bond is material for switching off your brain if you're part of the mainstream, if you are part of the majority or the self-proclaimed majority. So maybe it's time for something else, but at the same time, I can't deny it that James Bond appeals to me. Okay, so if you think it's time for something else, let's come to recommendations. What would you recommend people read if they say, I want to read an exciting spy story, but I don't want to read James Bond because he's sexist and racist and horrible? 
I go back to the 1930s. I go back to the works of, and this is a first, because I'm not going to recommend just one novel, but I'm going to recommend the oeuvre of an entire author. I'm going to recommend the works of Eric Ambler, a British author writing about espionage. So very familiar if you know authors like Ian Fleming or John Le Carré. But Eric Ambler wrote from a different ideological viewpoint. He wrote as a socialist. And interestingly enough, in his novels, the Soviet secret agents are usually the good guys, especially The Mask of Demetrius and my favorite novel, Epitaph for a Spy, are really, really good novels because they take up the intrigue of James Bond, this question of what is right, what is wrong, but they leave it much more open. In Ambler's works, being a spy is not something glamorous, but it's something horrible. His characters are usually really in over their heads. They are overwhelmed by what being a spy means. And still, there is a notion of something has to be done. Something is right. And there is something evil out there. So if you want to read complex spy literature which isn't all about branding or sexism or capitalism, then Eric Ambler's over is really the thing for you. I would really recommend Epitaph for a Spy because I really, really love that novel. I know that this is probably going to be not a very creative recommendation, but I would simply recommend the movie adaptation of Casino Royale. Usually we recommend books, but it is... A perfect case of an adaptation which updates the story and transports it 50 years to the future but it does it in such a brilliant way and it's such a brilliant movie the way it's shot the way the stunts are coordinated the way that they basically undermine the objectification of women in the entire James Bond canon by having Daniel Craig walk out of the sea rather as Ursula Andres or Halle Berry did, and it's his body that's being objectified. And also the fight choreographies and the suits and just everything about it is so brilliant. Go and watch that movie if you haven't. It is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant example of adaptation and a great example of 21st century cinema. I think that gives us a perfect opportunity to give a shout out to a few podcasts that also deal with the topic of James Bond. First, there's James Bond Radio. They are your source for all kinds of information regarding James Bond. They discuss James Bond movie news. They discuss older movies. They did a special tribute episode to Christopher Lee, who died just recently. So yeah, go and check out James Bond Radio. They are brilliant podcasts. And on the other hand, there's the James Bonding podcast by Matt Myra and Matt Gawley, which is one of the few podcasts which I listen to religiously. We and both listen to religiously. If you want to know more about the fascination with James Bond and the James Bond movies and why people still watch them, listen to the James Bonding podcast because it gives you a pretty good idea about why. So that's it for Casino Royale. We are now going to enjoy a meal inspired by the novel. But Jonas, what are we going to read next time? We're going to stay with the theme of secret agents, but we're going to take it back a couple of decades to the Victorian age. Next week we're going to read Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent. 
Fries, <laughs> motherfuckers! <laughs> Which is not actually what we agreed on before, but I just thought that would be a cool thing I to read. I read that one, so... I had to analyze a passage from that in my Oxford entrance exam. It's really good. It's and since really I f- good. And since I failed my Oxford entrance exam, I'm kind of traumatized by it. Okay, cut, cut, cut. I need to cut this now, and it's... This is the most horror. The horror. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We have to do one more thing. We have to do one more thing. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. I'm going to say a few more things about the character, but now I'm going to piss. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, wait, wait. This is going to be off the fucking rails. Oh, wait. We'll have to pay royalties for this, won't we? Uh...